Welcome to our Friday Torah study here at Keilah Israel, and a special welcome to all of our friends listening on the internet around the world. We're going to begin with our blessing over Torah study. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kitshanu b'mitzvotav v'tzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Spirit of the Universe, who makes us holy with commandments and calls us to engage with the words of Torah. We will be engaging with the words of Parshat Shmini this morning. Um, as uh, always, we are in the triennial cycle of reading, and so we are in the third third of every Parsha. So we're in the last third of every portion that we read. And so we're beginning this morning at chapter 11, verse 1. Um, I've told you before that the, one of the reasons I stay on the triennial reading is to keep me honest um, so that I have to keep studying every section of every Parsha because it's very easy to go to what we like and what's more interesting to us and not deal with the stuff that's not as interesting. But I find that that is, for me, um, it's not going to allow me to continue to challenge you know, my own assumptions about the text and ideas in the text, and it keeps, um, it keeps me um, studying and learning about even texts that sometimes I kind of... I'm not as uh, interested in. This morning, um, because we're in the third third, we're in, rather than the story of Nadav and Avihu, which is very interesting to me, it's incredibly fascinating, um, we're not going to do that, as tempting as it is. We're going to stay with uh, Shmini the third third, which is Kashrut. So we are dealing with the laws here of Kashrut. So don't worry, I've prepared lots of materials for you. Um, <laughs> So let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. If somebody would like to begin reading, please. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the Israelite people thus. These are the creatures that you may eat from among all the land animals. Any animal that has true hoofs with clefts through the hoofs and that chews the cud, such you may eat. The following, however, of those that either chew the cud or have true hoofs, you shall not eat. The camel, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure to you. The demon, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure for you. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hoofs, it is impure for you. And the swine, although it has true hoofs, with the hoofs cleft through, it does not chew the cud, it is impure for you. You shall not eat of their flesh or touch their carcasses, they are impure for you. These you may eat of all that live in water, anything in water, whether in the seas or in the streams, that has fins and scales. These you may eat, but anything in the seas or in the streams that has no fins and scales, among all the swarming things of the water and among all the other living creatures that are in the water, they are an abomination for you, and an abomination for you they shall remain. You shall not eat of their flesh, you shall not abominate their carcasses. Everything in the water that has no fins and scales shall be an abomination for you. All right. <clears throat> I love that word, right? Yeah. Abomination. All right. So actually, I love it that that word appears here, and I'm going to tell you why in a minute. All right. So God speaks to Moshe and Aaron and says to them, tell the people Israel right, that this is the, the law. This, these are the guidelines around eating. So here are the creatures that you may eat from among land animals. So any animal that has a true hoof with, its cl with the cleft through the hoof, and that chews its cud, such you may eat. So 
it has to have um, a real hoof, a true hoof, and the cleft has to go all the way through the hoof, and it has to chew its cud. So, but there are some animals, right, that chew the cud or have true hooves, but not both, right? So the, the example is the camel, that it chews its cud, but it doesn't have true hooves, you can't eat it, right? One of these criterion are not enough. You have to have both. The daemon, although it chews its cud, it has no true hooves, it is unclean. The hare, although it chews the cud, it has no true hooves, it is also unclean. And the swine, although it has true hooves, with the hooves cleft through, it does not chew its cud, it is unclean for you. So you shall not eat of their flesh or touch their carcasses. They are, in this case, these animals are called unclean, tame, impure. Right? We've seen this word lots in studying the sancta, in studying the cult. We know lots about pure and impure. Kadosh, holy, right? What is kadosh? Cannot, you know, the, the divine presence cannot be where there is tum'ah, you know, where there is um, contamination in a, in a certain way. Um, it says you can eat everything in the water. I thought, I thought, no. No. So this is what you may eat of all that lives in the water, right? Whether it's uh, fresh water or ocean, it has to have fins and scales. So, so anything in the sea or in the stream that has no fins and scales among the swarming things of the water and all the living creatures that are in the water, they are... Now we're getting this, this other term. They're not just tame. What are they? Abomination. Abomination. Right? All right. So this is... So that's even worse. One level worse. <laughs> so it is clearly, right, a word that is about um, something that is off limits. It is taboo. Right? There's nothing wrong, presumably, with any of these sea creatures or river creatures. There's nothing wrong with them. But you eating them is an abomination, right? They're fine on their own, but you, Israelites, can't eat them. Does anybody have ideas about why? <laughs> I'm gonna, it's I'm, so arbitrary and doesn't seem to make sense. Yeah, so I'm going to share an article. We're going to look at an article that, that does go into a little bit. One interpretation that I really like. There are many, as you can imagine. There are many, many, many suggesting why these. Why these classifications? I'll give you a couple. Um, but I'm going to share with you one that I really, really like. Um, because it also moves into a guide for how we might understand kashrut in our time that I, I just love. So, um, so let's finish with this idea of, of eating things in the water, that, only things that have fins and scales. You can't eat them, but also the, the other things that are abominations, you can't touch them either, right? Shekets, they are shekets. They are whatever this word means, right? Abominations. Shekets. A tzadi, not a tav. Um, so, although there are times where children who are talking when I'm trying to talk uh, are abominations. Uh, One thing about all these things is, which is strange for us, but you don't have to remember them. Mm -hmm. There's just several rules, and based on those rules, you can see from looking at any of these animals. You don't have Whether to remember should, the list. You don't have to remember the list. Right. They're criteria. So if it's got fins or scales, you don't have to even know the name of what it is. 
can eat it. You can eat it. You can eat it. Yeah, yeah, you can eat it. And it doesn't have fins and scales. So it's interesting that it's, for us, it looks extremely complicated. Right. Because we're used to consuming meat and fish in packages. But for people who discovered this in the wild, it probably made it a lot easier to figure out what they were supposed to and not supposed to do. So we do know that in the ancient Near East, um, one in Syria and in Mesopotamia, um, in training scribes, one of the things that they would use to train scribes is a list of categories of animals. So it seems that in the ancient Near East, this idea of categorizing animals was a common way of understanding the animal world. So perhaps a, an attempt to you know, group things together is an attempt to make order, right? It's an attempt for us to, to deal with the world in a way that helps us order it um, as human beings and classify um, things. So, so it's not a new idea in the ancient world um, to, to have these kinds of different classifications of what kinds of land animals, kinds of you know, water animals, kinds of insects. That's not a new idea in the ancient world. Um, this idea of you know, one classification of them being a, a, a better, not better, but permit, permittable, permissible to you, and one being an abom and everything else being an abomination. I don't know that we see that anywhere else in the ancient. Well, we go even further and ask, why would the Bible interest itself in food uh, classifications and uh, shall and shall not? Why? Why? So why, why even get into this thing about what you eat and what you don't eat? Okay. Let, let's go on a little bit in the text. Let's go to 13, and then we're going to come back to these questions that are all very good questions. I also wanted to know about the word abomination. We're so going to go there. <laughs> so Reuben, why don't you read for us at 13? The following you shall abominate among the birds. <laughs> They shall not be eaten. They are an abomination. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the kite, falcons of every variety, all varieties of raven, the ostrich, the nighthawk, the seagull, hawks of every variety, the little owl, the cormorant, and the great owl, the white owl, the pelican, and the bustard, the stork, herons of every variety, the hoopoe, and the bat. More? Yeah. All winged swarming things that walk on fours shall be an abomination for you. But these you may eat among all the winged swarming things that walk on fours. All that have above their feet jointed legs to leap with on the ground. Of these you may eat the following. Locusts of every variety. All varieties of bald locusts. Crickets of every variety. Yep. And chocolate-covered grasshoppers. And all other winged swarming things that have four legs shall be an abomination for you. And that's more. Yeah. And the following shall make you impure. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And whoever carries the carcasses of any of them shall wash those clothes and be impure until evening. Every animal that has true hooves, but without clefts through the hooves, for that does, or that does not chew the cut, they are impure for you. Whoever touches them shall be impure. Also, all animals that walk on paws among 
among those that walk on fours are impure for you. Whoever touches their carcasses shall be impure until evening. And anyone who carries the carcasses shall wash those, cl those clothes and remain impure until evening. They are impure for you. The following shall be impure for you from among the things that swarm on the earth. The mole, the mouse, the great lizards of every variety, the gecko, the lamb, the crocodile, the lizard, the lamb, the sand lizard, and the chameleon. Those are for you the impure things, all the swarming, among the, all the swarming things. Whoever touches them when they are dead shall be impure. Until evening. Until evening. <laughs> and anything on which one of them falls when dead shall be impure. Be it any article of wood or, or a cloth or a skin or a sack, any such article that, that can be put to use shall be dipped in water and it shall remain impure until evening. Then it shall be pure. And if any of those falls into an earthen vessel, everything inside it shall be impure and the vessel itself you shall break. As to any food that may be eaten, it shall become impure if it came in contact with water. As to any liquid that may be drunk, it shall become pure. Unclean. It shall become impure. Impure. If it was inside any vessel. Everything on which the carcass of any of them falls shall be impure. An oven or stove shall be smashed. They are impure, and impure they shall remain for you. However, a spring or cistern in which water is collected shall be pure. But whoever touches, touches such, such a carcass in it shall be impure. Such a carcass falls upon seed grain that is to be sown, it is pure. But if water is put on the seed and any part of a carcass falls upon it, it shall be impure for you. All right, so, so I wanted us to keep reading because it's beyond categorizing what animals you can and cannot eat. As we keep reading, you see that it's also about their communication of impurity. This is not a separate category altogether. This is a category related to all things about purity and impurity with which the Levites are supposed to be diligent. So we've seen over and over and over discussions of what is pure, what is impure. The Levites must remain pure. They are the ones charged right, with the sancta, with keeping the ritual space pure. Um, but also the Israelites are to understand themselves as a people with pure and impure, right? We've, we've had this concept. This is not news to us. So the question, why concern itself with food? Because Torah concerns itself with every aspect of human behavior that can involve ritual purity and impurity, behavior with the physical and natural world, that with the people around them, there is an understanding among the people around the Israelites in pagan cultures that there are things you eat at certain times, at certain festivals, that are sacred foods, that are sacred obligations, that are used in offerings, that are used in rituals. Food is a part of the religious system. It just is. That's just something we humans have always understood, that food um, is part of how we engage with you know, spiritual reality. Um, but for the Israelites, 
there wasn't really a separation between how they were supposed to live and their religious life. Their religious life was a part of everything they did. So if you think that this is a part of eating as part of one category, so engagement with food and beverage is one category, but, but the other one is think about sexuality. Intercourse is also regulated by the cult, right? By the idea of there is pure and impure, you know, like permitted and non-permitted sexual activity categories all over the place. Last week, the priest was told who he can and cannot marry, right? Because sexual relations for the priest, there are categories of women that were off limits to the priest. Not because anything's wrong with them, but because it would render the priest impure and therefore not able to be ready to serve in the, in the, in the temple. Yes. Sounds to me like you're so we are describing the origins of what orthodoxy understands as the laws, yes, around many of those things. Some of them don't apply anymore. So when you're talking <coughs> excuse me, when we're talking about ritual categories, when we're talking about stuff having to do with something that's taboo. We are talking about purity and impurity, right? So those animals that are not permitted to you are impure. That's one way of talking about them. The other way of talking about them here is sheketz, abomination. The word used in Deuteronomy is to'eva. Because we get this list here and we get another list in Deuteronomy. And they are similar and different in certain ways. Um, but this word, sheketz, and the word to'eva are related it is always about ritual taboo, right? There's nothing wrong with the rabbit. You can't eat it, right? There's nothing wrong with any of these creatures. They were created by God. They are fine. But you, if you, Israelite, engage in the behavior of eating them, your behavior is toeva, is sheketz. It's an abomination. And touching them communicates, right? Because if you're not supposed to eat it, good way to prevent you from eating it is not permitting you to touch it. So if you, don't, if you touch it, you've also engaged in behavior that is abominable, right? Their carcass communicates abomination, right? So what so I love about... Huh? No, a, a carcass. Right. A carcass. Carcass. Okay. <laughs> yeah. so, so what I love about this word being here is that this is the word used of homosexual behavior in the Bible. A man shall not lie with a man as, and actually the, the language is, a man shall not lie with another man, the layings of a woman. It is toeva. It is an abomination. It is a ritual taboo that is very different from saying that it is an ethical violation. So when anyone wants to use the biblical text as proof that you know, God and Torah and whatever see homosexual behavior as unethical, there is absolutely no grounds for that. Zero grounds for that. It is ritually taboo. It is off limits to you Israelites. We can go into the discussion about 
Why? That would have been, right? But it's the same as this. There's nothing wrong with a shrimp. There's nothing wrong with it. You aren't allowed to eat it. Why not? Well, we have lots of, we can have lots of theories about why. But Torah doesn't tell us why not. It's off limits to you. And so that makes it an abomination. Yeah. It seems like it's really complicated. <laughs> that it's really complicated. Because there's certain foods that you can't mix. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Is, is that here? No, it's not. No, it's not. I ask you about that. No, it's not. No, it's not. So there's a joke mm-hmm. in our tradition that says, Moses goes up to God to receive Torah, and God says to Moses, tell the Israelites they shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. So Moshe says they shall. So what you're telling me is that they can't eat meat and milk together. And God says, "Thou tell them they shall not seethe a kid in its mother's milk. So that means we probably have to have two sets of dishes so that we don't even take the chance that we would mix those food. And God says, tell them they shall not seethe a kid. And it goes on and on. Right? So the rabbis took thou shalt not seethe a kid in its mother's milk, and they go to great Lengths to put what we call a, a gedev, a fence around the, the, the law mm-hmm. so that you don't violate that law. So how do you know this kid belongs to that mother? How do you know? If you have a flock and you're, drink, and you're going to cook the, the kid in, in milk, how do you know it's that small? So we're not going to cook any kid in any goat milk. But then how do you know that's goat milk or how do you know that's kid meat? How do you know it's not a sh- uh, you know, veal? Like, so it gets, compli- it, it gets complicated. It gets complicated because the rabbis go further and further and further to protect the original law as society gets more complicated. If you didn't, if you didn't kill the animal yourself and didn't milk the animal yourself to make dinner, it gets more complicated, doesn't it? It gets way more complicated. How do you know what meat it is? Like Bert said, they didn't have packaging. So as you go to market and buy meat, how can you be sure that white meat... Um, is kid and not veal. So you don't cook any meat in any milk, and then there's no possibility that you're violating the original precept. Understand? That's how it gets complicated. That's how halakha expands. And if you think about it, if you think about the Constitution, and then you think about any topic, free speech, what's covered exactly under free speech? I don't know about you, but I, I wouldn't pretend to know even where to start studying the, the legal tomes written about what exactly free speech in our legal system means. That is what has happened with Jewish law. Over time, there are more and more circumstances that arise that need to be dealt with, and therefore, microwave ovens, are they kosher? If you cooked meat in them? What about, can you cook milk in them? Like, but so, who, you gotta, you gotta legislate for a lot more circumstances. Not always, no. They, sometimes there's an answer, you just run the cycle empty. You just run it empty for a while, because the heat, well, doesn't matter. The, a strict constructionist when it comes to these. So Strict constructionist would say, because, because it's not seething no, a kid in its mother's Yeah, mother. that's kosher. Yes. Not considered meat. Correct. Wow. Correct. When we built fences around the Torah, it was too complicated, and I suppose it was changed in time. Correct. So, so things are recategorized in a way that then 
result in a huge number of laws to deal with that that we don't um, that, that that we see as complicated because we didn't grow up a lot of us observing them, right. right? So I grew up in a home with two sets of dishes, and two sets of pots and pans, and two sets of silverware. Four sets. Four sets. That's right. Mm -hmm. Because you had Pesach, <laughs> and you had your your dress china that was always flashic. So, so you had two sets of regular dishes, and then a set of dressy dishes, and then your Pesadic dishes. So I grew up with four sets of dishes and four sets of silverware. It was not complicated for me to know which to use when. If you live it every day, it's not that complicated. Now to become a legal expert, you know, and I'm not, because I don't want to say it's not a hugely complicated system. So the rabbis, you know, if someone goes to them and says, is this kosher, I dropped this into that, is the soup kosher? Like, I'm not suggesting it's not a complicated system whereby the rabbis rule. It's very complicated. But for your daily folk, you just know what's off limits. You never ate it. It was never in the house. Yeah, this seems, yeah. yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Yes. The, uh, some of these taboos are not just religious. Look at this recent thing about horse meat in Europe. People went completely nuts because there was horse meat. I mean, aside from the fact the packaging was wrong. But we believe in this country that there's something horribly wrong with eating horse meat. In France, it's a delicacy. It's in a lot of dog food. You know, yeah, there's, there's, uh, there, there are countries where they eat dog, where they think it's really wonderful. And we don't, so it's not. I can think of a change dog, in our is lifetime. Is that kosher? Hmm? No. Of course not. Okay. When I was a child, we never heard the word blood kosher. Never. There was kosher and not kosher. Uh -huh. So now we have galat kosher. What is galat kosher as opposed to ordinary kosher? So within the system of, of kashrut, you have different um, organizations that take responsibility for supervising the process to ensure that something has not been right contaminated. And they give a heksher, right? Why is it a heksher? From kasher. Heksher. So it's the stamp that makes this thing kasher for you to eat. Right? So heksher means I, Rabbi Shmulevitz, take upon myself the sin if anything is wrong with this. You, Reuben, can eat it. I put my heksher on it. You can eat it. And you don't get the, a negative in the big black book if something's wrong with it. I take the responsibility. So, because I watched it and I approved it, so it's off of your shoulders. But that's, that's normal. That's right. So you want to know whose standards do you feel comfortable with knowing that they took responsibility. People who eat glot kosher are not comfortable with the standards of certain rabbinic authorities who say it's fine. They say, mm -mm, not good enough for me. I don't trust that rabbi. They're not stringent enough. So they're not stringent enough, so I can't be sure I'm not But isn't this a fairly sinning. recent um, uh, view of things? Glot? Uh, no, there's always been a standard. There's always been glot And there's always been different you know, standards. So there, this is the one that's called, you know, by that name, by glot kosher means, you know, there's just more strident. I think glot in Yiddish means straight, doesn't it? Glot? Glot's what would you smooth. say? Smooth, yeah, okay. Smooth kosher. Uh, mm. One of the things that this whole system does 
is uh, keep those who are in it isolated from other people who eat differently so that in a way it's protective of preserving the solidity of the group. That's exactly right. But and it's also very limiting. So yes, yes, and yes. So when we read the Joseph story, we read about the Egyptians eating separately from the Hebrews. Because eating with the Hebrews for the Egyptians would have been an abomination. It is very well attested, right, this idea that there is taboo around food practices. What, what is taboo for early Israel here, to go to whoever raised the question, one possible explanation is that some of these foods would have been part of pagan religious you know, ceremonies or sanctified foods for them. So how do you make sure Israelites are not engaged in any of that behavior? You make it taboo for them to even touch that stuff. So you can't even go to your neighbor's clam bake, right? Now maybe it's just a clam bake and they're just singing Bob Dylan songs. <laughs> But what if it's really a pre-Christmas clam bake? And, right, you just can't take that chance. So you can't even touch the clams. So, or a pig roast or a, you know, fill in the blank. So exactly, it keeps the, that people separate and you eat according to your own traditions, then presumably it helps keep the group separate and other. And you bring your own food wrapped in wax paper mm -hmm. to some other Jew's house who isn't kosher enough for you. So this is where what was meant to be, right, a building of solid sense of community can, when taken to extremes, obviously, um, become divisive. It certainly has become, I think, a very painfully um, divisive issue uh, in the Jewish world for exactly the reason you said, when people say, my mother-in-law won't come to Seder at my house because we're not kosher enough for her. Um, it, it's terribly damaging um, that people won't eat. You know, I mean, so um, it's damaging of you know that sense of we're we're all in this together and we're all part of the same. Um, and you can't just go cultural to the tradition. restaurant, you know, at whim. No, that's right because that would mean right mixing in American society in a way right that it's exactly designed to prevent. So, on the one hand, there are some things that make us other and different that help us have a sense of being um, a people. When that is carried to an extreme where that becomes the only value at work, I believe it is damaging, right, in some ways and in some context to our relationships with each other and with the broader world. So, this is something where I think um, idolatry for me is a word that I would use, right? That, that when we raise one piece of the system up above all others, for me, it's idolatrous. And it's always damaging. And it's always hurtful, right? You have to raise, if you're going to raise up kashrut as a value of Jewish peoplehood, what about klal Yisrael? Like, what about that value of eating together? Isn't that as important as kashrut? I'm not saying kashrut isn't necessarily important or that it can't be important to somebody. When it becomes the only criterion by which you define how to participate in Jewish community, it's idolatry to me. However, when you, when you think about when these rules were 
creative and you, you think about, well, you can't go to a restaurant. This is a very modern concept because up until how long ago, yeah. we couldn't be with others. You know, the Jewish people were confined to our ghettos and we couldn't, there weren't restaurants to go out to eat. So this wasn't really a struggle and this is very much for modern times. So, well, it, if you think about ancient Israel, it was a very big issue. Most of the Israelites would have been converted Canaanites. Mm -hmm. How do you keep them in relationship to this idea of yod heh vav -Heh and that way of sanctified living? It was because they have to. Now you're separate. Now you're separate from every the, the Jebusites and the Moabites and the Edomites and the Edomites. You got to be separate from all of them. You can't eat with them. If you go to the clam bake, it's a slippery slope. So you're not allowed to go there. It's it's taboo. So. In that sense, it is very, they were living in a similar situation. It was later, after the exile, when the reality became we were segregated by the rest of the world into ghettos. That, that was not the case here. They were trying to self-identify and self, um, you know, strengthen their sense of identity you know, as a, as a new, as a kind of new thing in that part of the world. Mickey? Some of this creates other issues of, for example, which is more important, um, observances of uh, where this kashu can be overcome through your own food, but in case where you have a family event and one, uh, say, a member of a grandchild or won't drive, so which is more important, not... The simcha or the, or the breaking of the law, but it's... Yeah. And this is, this is exactly where I feel like progressive Judaism has a lot to offer in the discussion because we are willing to, to own and admit that there are values that conflict and that contradict each other and that it's not so simple which one should, should win. You know, that we, we really try to struggle with which is more important, this you know, or that. And I think that's a, you know, a really important aspect that we bring to the whole Jewish discussion. It seems like the, the 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 purpose of these originally is exactly in conflict with like Mordecai Kaplan's goal, which was not to to come to America and to have a Judaism and Reconstructionism that doesn't make people feel like they have to choose one or the other, being a Jew or being an American, but that they can be part of both communities. So. So you should know that Mordecai Kaplan observed. Orthodox levels of observance till the day he died. But for him, he might have been able to do that, but wasn't his whole point of let's in taking out the word chosen was to make people feel like he could be part of the larger community as well as being a Jew. Correct. He did not feel those were in conflict. He felt right. that to firmly express one's connection to the Jewish people and its traditions and to be fully American were absolutely possible at the same time. You don't have to give up kashrut right. to be fully American and fully involved in American society. But it turns out, as we evolve, that when you want to come to your neighbor's clam bake, you do. You eat before you go. But you can go. But you can go. And that's maybe, you know, that's the... So, right, so that, right. but that's... That, that's a big difference, right? right. So in, in certain kinds of Judaism, before Kaplan, you can't even go to the clam bake. It's called ma'arit ayin. Okay. It is the legal principle of ma'arit ayin, and that means 
um, the, uh, e the bad eye, a bad appearance. Well, I saw Rabbi Bernstein at the clam bake. So that means it must be okay to eat clams because she was there with that whole group. She was there the whole night, right? So it, it's, it's ma'aridayin. So, but th that's where Kaplan would have, I don't know. I mean, I, I have to check Kaplan on this, but he might have taken, a, he, he might have taken it out of that realm and said, you know, I can have my own observance of kashrut and go out of respect to my friend to their clam bake and just not eat, right? So th 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 we can discuss levels and we can discuss what's off limits and how far out those fences go. You know, we might move those fences drastically in, but it doesn't mean one has to give up one's understanding of a spiritual Jewish relationship to eating. And so what I think is that we've evolved past Kaplan's even understanding in some ways, and he would have loved that. He, he would have been very much on board with, with what I'm going to show you, which is this, uh, this piece by Rabbi Samuel Weintraub called The Spiritual Ecology of Kashrut. And he starts out talking about um, that there's no you know, human activity so laden with personal and cultural meaning as that of eating. So Ruben, to your question of why does Torah care about eating, because... It's so central, really, to, to who we are. Um, and, you know, like being around the table is a huge part of human society, of what it means to be part of a human, you know, social group, what, however we define that. So go down to where he says traditional Judaism, that paragraph, fourth paragraph, also prescribes a diet, the biblical rabbinic system of kashrut. So he tells us where we find that. He tells us what we can eat and what we can't eat. Go down to the bottom, paragraph, first page. To many today, the ancient Jewish system of kashrut, when juxtaposed with our modern scientific regimens, seems mysterious and inaccessible at best, or anachronistic and irrational at worst, right? So health literature tells us, he says, that kashrut has nothing to do with health. And I'm here to tell you, like, when someone wants to say, well, it's because... You could die from trichinosis if you ate pork that wasn't cooked correctly. Well, you die just as miserable a death from beef that is not cooked correctly, right? If you see the thing on a menu about hamburgers, right? Please know as you order this hamburger that meat that is not, you can die, right? So it is not health practices. It had nothing to do with health practices. Because if we want to go there, we know about health practices. We shouldn't be eating fat or certain kinds of fat. We shouldn't be eating you know, cholesterol, of certain kinds of cholesterol, depending on your genetics. We shouldn't be eating carbohydrates, those of us who can't digest grains. So we know about health. It's not kashrut. Kashrut is not about what's good for the body. It's about a system that was a spiritual relationship as a way of approaching every single meal, aware of being part of the Jewish people and in relationship to Yodhei So he says, um, flip your, go to the back of the first page. He says there's lots of people who are going to try to right, explain those kinds of things, um, like how it comes about as you know, health practices. Um, and then he says there's other kinds of contemporary thinkers trying to make this, this ancient system somehow meaningful. Drop down to where it says Mordechai Kaplan. Mordechai Kaplan specifically endorsed kashrut as a means to perpetuate, quote, Jewish identification and distinctiveness. The urgency for strengthening whatever factors in Jewish life makes for survival is even greater now than in the past. 
Kashrut is particularly effective in lending Jewish atmosphere to the home, which in the diaspora in our last ditch defense against the inro- is our last ditch defense against the inroads of assimilation. So Kaplan felt having a Jewish relationship to eating was critically important to maintaining a Jewish identity in America. That's very clear. Kaplan also appreciated kashrut for generating spiritual values in that it can habituate the Jew in the practice of viewing a commonplace physical need as a source of physical, of spiritual value, right? So he's drawing closer, um, Weintraub is saying, to the real rationale for kashrut, right? And that um, is what we see here in Leviticus. For I am the eternal, your God. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. We keep kosher to be holy, as God is holy. What does it mean to be holy or godlike? Partly it means living ethically, for God is associated throughout the Torah with justice, compassion, and mercy. But holiness is more than ethical living. It involves an underlying religious attitude from which ethics and other humanistic systems are built. Right? Drop down. Jewish ritual tries to maintain within us this sense of awe and responsiveness. So how do we cultivate a sense of awe and wonder in our regular everyday activities that are so easy to get desensitized to? We have a system of you can and can't so that you're consciously engaging with that act every single time you do it and not taking it for granted. Um, I want to go to to Rabbi Weintraub's uh, or his understanding of um, kind of the underlying rationale for kashrut. Where is it? <laughs> okay. Today, however... Where are you? I don't know. The third page. Third page, sorry. Third page, sorry. Wait, third page. Okay. All right, so wait. Today, I, however, that one? Yeah. yeah. Actually, go two paragraphs above that. As with with the blessing over bread. You see that? Mm -hmm. All right. You're going to come down to the third sentence, last four words. In a path-breaking essay, The Abominations of Leviticus, the anthropologist Mary Douglas noted a correspondence between the patterns of permitted and prohibited animals and the classification of animals in the Genesis creation story. So there's a parallel, she says, the anthropologist, between Genesis... And the classification of animals there and the permitted and not permitted animals here in Leviticus. What does she think? She points out, for example, that animals fall into certain pure categories at creation by virtue of their means of locomotion, whether walking on all fours, swimming, or flying. Thus, animals that blatantly cross the primordial boundaries, like the crustaceans, which are sea-bound yet crawl, are impure. So Mary Douglas, an anthropologist looking at lots of cultures in, throughout history, says at creation, the ones that are pure are the ones who have a pure means of locomotion. On land, they walk. You know, if they're birds, they fly. If they are sea creatures, they swim. Right? If not, they're off limits. If they cross the line that they live in the water, but they crawl on the land, that's crossing Genesis's understanding of the, the categories of, like, kind of, of pure, of tahor. She'd have made a good rabbi. She'd have made a great <laughs> rabbi, right? So, but what does that mean? So, 
So what do we, what do we get from that? So, she, so he says, the specifics of this analysis are debatable, but herein I am interested in Douglas's general appreciation of the connection between biblical kashrut and creation. For Douglas, kashrut sustained a collective Israelite consciousness of the origin and preciousness of the natural world. By their food laws, the Israelites appreciated order and wholeness in the natural world and joined in the holiness of that world's creator. Kashrut, then, is a kind of spiritual ecology manifesting a deep subliminal process, um, which this other scholar terms religious nostalgia, the universal desire of people to live in the world as when it came from the creator's hands, fresh, pure, and strong. So let's just take that in for a second. If it's a way of participating in appreciating the world as it was when it came forth. Wow. So if eating is about participating in the holiness of that, how might we move that biblical idea forward? That is a powerful idea. How can we eat in such a way that we participate in cultivating our awareness that the created world and all of its creatures and our interaction with it is about wholeness and purity as when it first, pristine, right? As when it first was. We might not think as progressive Jews about the moment of creation, but we might think you know, of before human beings started trashing the place. Also, uh, during the flood, allegedly, fish were the only ones that were not destroyed in it. Mm. And um, that when we, when we kosher an animal, that there's a tikkun, it needs a healing, it's not just okay to eat, it has to ha have a human interaction. But with fish, it needs no human interaction. We could just take it out and anybody could eat it. And you could, don't have to drain the blood either. It's, it's mm -hmm. very unusual in that regard. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it makes you think that if all that, you know, getting back to the most holy thing, and the most holy thing would, in my reading, be to be vegetarian now, which mm -hmm. is possible. It may not have been then. And so, so I believe... That's not kashrut. I, I think what he's arguing is if we're going to carry this idea forward, that might be the conclusion we reach. Is that That's a progressive idea? That is a progressive understanding. So let's go to the middle, because I, I want to stay there with you, Laura. So go, go down to the middle of the paragraph that starts today. And it says, right? So to the primitive Israelites of the Torah, the existence of the natural world meant something. The Spirit of God breathed through it. A good and fertile land was a sign of God's blessing, and the prophet's messianic forecasts spoke of lions and lambs, fig trees, and green pastures. For modern technological people, however, the world is mostly a sum of physical reserves we'd better exploit cleverly and not stupidly exhaust. Steers and veal calves in the idiom of American agribusiness have become, quote, bio-machines, right? We must recultivate a spiritual appreciation of the natural world if we are to cherish and preserve what he would argue, right, is real kashrut. Otherwise, 
To paraphrase Heschel, Kashrut becomes a lovely response to a question no one is asking anymore. Fortunately, we have in modern ecological consciousness and in the traditions of Kashrut possibilities to inspire that sense of awe towards the natural world. Okay, can I just say this? Yes. This is where I'm, I'm missing a piece here. You know, this talks about to have this cherish and preservation of the natural world. Well, I mean, it was nat it's natural that there's bottom crawlers in the sea. Mm -hmm. It's God made this. And I don't, I, if they want you to preserve the world the way it is and, and appreciate it for the way it is, if everything is coming from God, then why this separation? Because for them, they understood in Genesis, in the ancient Israelite mindset, there is an understanding that if it lives in the water but crawls on the land, it's crossing a boundary. It's, it's not as pure as one that just swims because, or just walks on the land. It, even because though God made it. Yes. It's fine. It's not the same. It's not the same. There's no, it's, it's not means of locomotion. There are categories that are expressive of purity, and that that the creation for the ancient Israelite mind and spirit was uh, cre was order out of chaos, right? For the ancient world, order out of chaos. At least for the ancient Israelites. There are some who argue that this is a new idea, actually. That, that, that the whole idea that, that creating order out of chaos gives us this, then order and classifications become critical. So things that cross that are like, that's part of the reason some people say male-male homosexuality was an abomination. It crosses the, the understanding of gender and, and dominant and submissive, right? Male is dominant, female is submissive. Duh, that's the way God created it, right? If you cross that, it, it's, 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 it's just, right, you just, it's, no, we want, right? So, if, so for them, that was this, he's saying it might have been their underlying way of understanding the participation in the holiness and pureness and order of creation. What would it mean for us? to eat with that same consciousness. Laura has suggested one way, which is if you look at how much a cow costs the environment, we could argue from this perspective that it's no longer kosher. If we apply this underlying principle, if it's damaging the ecology of the earth, the planet, then it's not expressive of the values of kashrut. Well, I was going to say, there's a, we've been talking about the what, really. To me, the broader question is whether to deal with this at all. Because this is what progressive Jews face. Because the issue is, do we deal with kashrut at all? Do we bring God and the Jewish tradition to the table? Literally. Literally, or not. That's question one. And if we do, then question two is, in what form? Is right. it in vegetarianism? Is it in more, you know, not eating pork? Is it in more traditional rules? But the issue, there was a book a number of years ago, Does God Belong in the Bedroom, I think. And I like the question, does God belong at the table? And I think that's a question that is important. 
So, and, and if we say yes, then that opens this whole discussion and this whole thing about, okay, how and what, and what does it mean to me to bring God to the table, which I think is the idea of Kashru. But she also mentioned, I think in the readings also mentioned a portion about spirituality and being holy. So yeah, that, that, and if, that, one that decides, that. if one decides that right, one is going to bring that. that to the table, then one, that's what Kashru is. And then one needs to say, now what is what Kashru? Is Kashru? For so, me, how does that... Yeah. See, I was not er early in my life. It was irrelevant to me, completely. And about 20 years ago, it became more and more relevant. And then, it's just a personal decision, decided to find a way to bring that to the table. Every time I sit down in a restaurant and look at a menu, I look at it with Jewish eyes. Because I, 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 I'm not looking at it like, oh, gee, what's here? I'm looking at it for what do I dodge, what can I eat, what can I eat, and why? Mm -hmm. And Mickey? Rabbi Winokur, our founding rabbi, uh, taught that a lot of the rules and regulations and rituals are educational devices, bring us to the bottom line of what it, does it mean to the ecology, to uh, relationships. And it's all, that's what it all ends up. That, that's right. That's right. And so what I've put before you is a piece by Rabbi Arthur Waskow, who is at the forefront of the eco-kashrut movement. He really believes fully and completely that for us to be discussing at all in progressive Judaism the issue of kashrut, we must be addressing it from the standpoint of the, of the environment, of ecology. That that is fundamentally the origin of kashrut in the first place was the Israelite relationship to the idea that creation is holy and the way we eat and the way we interact with eating is expressive of that awareness. How can we eat in a way that cultivates that awareness and that sense of awe and wonder and humility around um, the preciousness of creation? And that, that we both have to deal with what Bird is saying, eating Jewishly from a, you know, uh, continuity perspective, right? You know, what, what is our relationship to these kashrut laws? We each have to figure that out as a community and as individuals. And what is our relationship to an evolving understanding of how the underlying principles of this apply today? I think both are critically important. Both the issue of how do we relate to eating Jewishly historically the, meaning what, what eating Jewishly meant for the last 3,000 years, and going to the underlying, as Weintraub so beautifully says, goes to the underlying spiritual value of eating in a way that cultivates our appreciation, our respect, and our participation and the holiness of the wholeness of creation. Yeah, like when, when you think of the spiritual element of and I'm just starting to think in those terms, you can appreciate how hurtful uh, this episode in um, Fairfax was where they mm -hmm. smuggled presumably unkosher meat into a kosher butcher shop. Uh, you, know, you might think, well, why are people so upset? And I think it's this part of the kashrut that would trouble really uh, observant people. Which part? 
the part that they have that's that the they're part. that they're eating non-kosher meats. Mm -hmm. But we didn't talk in this portion about the ethical killing of animals as kosher. We just Forbidden. talked about so all the ethics of it. Then this is just separation. I mean, you know, from from your neighbors, and maybe there's the the ecological part or the, and the spiritual part of thinking about something. But it's nothing in here about you know be kind when you kill the cow. But not here. Right. Rabbinic Judaism developed that okay. as an idea. The thing I think is interesting about this development of the eco-kashru is it's actually taking us away from, potentially, the idea of having the same rules as our community. Because if I decide that for me, kosher means just being veg vegan, maybe, hmm. then that's going to take me away from the rest of my Jews, which is another you know, leg of the, of the table that's holding up the law Possibly, but so, but if you didn't, if you observed a more traditional level of kashrut, the same thing right. could happen because you could be out of line with right. the norms and standards of your community. This is why Reconstructionist Judaism, this is one of the places we differ from reform, by the way. When people say, what is the difference right. between reform and reconstruction? This is one of the big places for me that I have seen it in action, right now anyway, lived in American Judaism 2013, um, is that it isn't just what I eat. It's that we as a reconstructionist community decide what is our agreed upon norm and standard as a community. And then what we do at home, obviously each of us are going to make our own choices. But we, there's been a long process here. I did a two-year process in Duluth mm -hmm. to get to yes, to get everybody to yes, um, about what our communal agreement about our norms and standards in the synagogue was going to be. And <clears throat> that's a very important process and discussion and ongoing observance for, because Reconstructionism says whatever we do at home, we should have a communal understanding so that there isn't that, right. that we're not all over the map and coming in as individuals with all the, and so that's a very significant way that Reconstructionist values play out for me a bit differently than it does necessarily in, in, in other places. Not that other places don't do it, but that it's a core value for us that, that we come to some communal agreement that might not be our own individual practice at home. That to me is a really good reason or argument to stay, to, not that I am, uh, kosher at home so that all Jews do feel comfortable eating at your table. Right. Yeah. Well, th that, that, that is one of the ongoing right, reasons yeah. to, to continue for many people. Yeah. Unfortunately, when we were discussing it here at KI, that's impossible because there's always, there are always going to be some Jews who consider that your particular brand of kosher is not what they want. So you try and get as broad as you can. Right. But there's still, you know, what is kosher is still, you know, very different among different, right. uh, not very different, but different. Everyone what some people accept as kosher, other people would. Right, but, but I think Pam is saying, for her, the guiding right. value right. was inclusion. That and may not be the guiding value for us. For us, the guiding value might be, I want to be able to bring a dish that I prepared at home. Sure. That's the guiding value, is Kalal Yisrael mm -hmm. and our and making everyone feel comfortable to bring something to a potluck. So you know, who, what criterion we right. go by is different depending on are we making an individual decision or are we making 
a community decision. And that is something that progressive Judaism values. That it might be a different criterion I use at home. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not inconsistent to us. Or if it is inconsistent, there's no problem with inconsistency, right? It's a different thing should apply as the top value in different contexts. That's our obligation. To keep this living and breathing and relevant, we have to continue to wrestle with what value, right, is going to win the day in that particular decision. Because we often have conflicting values. We have no problem with that as Jews, that they conflict. The problem is, you know, how do you figure out an agreed upon way to decide which value will, will define the decision? Shabbat shalom.